James chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be looking at especially verses 8 through verse 13, but I'm going to begin reading uh, at verse 1 of chapter 2 uh, through verse 13. So James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, listen now once again to the reading of God's holy word. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures... You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But, if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we again praise you and thank you that We have this great honor to come into your presence and to hear the truth of your word as it has been read and and sung. And now we look forward to the proclamation of your word. And Father, we pray that you would just truly bless it, uh, that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear and receive the truth, to hear it by faith. And that truly as it goes forth in the power of the Spirit, we do pray that especially that it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we ask now for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, in recent years, there has been somewhat of a controversy in in the Reformed churches uh, regarding the relationship between God's law and the gospel. And at the heart of this controversy is how the Christian is to view and to respond to the law of God when he's been saved by grace in Jesus Christ and freed from the condemnation that the law brings. And so, if the duty to obey the law is emphasized or overemphasized, then it may seem like salvation by grace alone 
is trampled upon as the believer then is tempted to rely more on what they do for salvation than on what the Lord has done for them in Christ. And then these are, of course, uh, rightly charged with promoting legalism and a works-based righteousness. But, on the other hand, if the grace of the gospel is overemphasized, what we might call a, a hyper-grace, as it's been termed, well, then it may seem as though it doesn't matter how one lives uh, their lives, and so the believer is tempted to disregard the law, and they just continue in sin so that grace may abound. Well, of course, these are then rightly charged with promoting antinomianism or just being against the law and and spiritual laziness. Now, it may seem like this is uh, perhaps just an abstract theological issue to to be discussed and and debated out in the the seminaries or by high theological-minded types. But there's actually a great deal at stake here for every believer as it influences, first of all, our view of justification. Justification is that act of God's grace where we're made right in His sight by faith in Jesus Christ. It also influences our view of sanctification. And that is the continued work of God's grace in us by which we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And then even more practically, it greatly influences how we live our day-to-day lives as those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now the solution, of course, lies somewhere in the middle with a proper distinction between justification and sanctification and a much-needed balance between the saving grace of the gospel and our duty by God's grace to show our love and gratitude to God by keeping His commandments. Now the whole letter of James but especially here in chapter 2, really addresses these very issues. And of course, remember in context, James has uh, been addressing the issue of partiality and discrimination within the body of believers. In the assembly of those to whom James is writing, there was preferential treatment being given to the rich while the poor brethren were being discriminated against. And James has denounced such unequal treatment as foolishness. But in the passage before us, James makes a transition from the specific duty toward our neighbor, really to a broader application of the law in general. What he calls here the royal law, and how loyal believers in Christ ought to respond to that royal law. And begins at verse 8, By saying, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Now note first that the royal law is revealed in the scriptures. And of course at this time, the time James was writing, James was one of the the earlier books of the New Testament. The times that he was writing, the only scriptures that were widely available, of course, were the scriptures of the Old Testament. And, of course, James writing to predominantly Jewish believers. So the royal law is to be found in the Old Testament. And James gives what amounts to a summary of that law by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, 
we may be surprised because we often think of this law as strictly being a command that Jesus gives in the New Testament. And certainly it is something a command that Jesus gives to us uh, in the Gospels. But Jesus gives this command, and the first and the greatest commandment, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus gives both of these commands as a summary of the entire Old Testament moral code. For example, in response to the question of the lawyer about which commandment is the greatest, Jesus responds in Matthew 22, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to what he says here. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Right? Jesus notes specifically that these two love commands are the summary of the moral code found throughout the entire Old Testament. And, and by moral code is meant how God has revealed to His people the way in which they're to live. And though this moral code can be found, again, all over the Old Testament, we know that God has summarized it for His people on Mount Sinai when He gave the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments were given to instruct God's covenant people how they were to live, and in particular, how they were to serve and to love Him with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and how they were to love their neighbors as themselves. And so you see, the two love commands simplify the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments explain in more detail what loving God and loving our neighbor is supposed to look like. The moral code, the Ten Commandments, and the two love commands that Jesus speaks of, and that James mentions here, are one and the same. And and again, this is important to keep in mind. Especially in today's world, where people try to separate these two love commands from the Ten Commandments. You can't separate them because they're the same thing. Now we may wonder, though, If the two love commands summarize the moral law of the Old Testament, why does James only single out the second greatest commandment here, to love your neighbor? Why doesn't he include the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God? Now there may be two reasons for this. First, in context, James again has been focusing on love for neighbor. In particular, love for your neighbor who might be poor and needy. As he uh, noted back in chapter 1, verse 27, that pure, undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows in the midst of their trouble. And then he followed this by denouncing partiality and discrimination. Again, both which deal with how we end up treating our neighbors. And so it's just the theme that that James has been focusing on is dealing with your neighbors, your brothers in Christ, and your sisters in Christ especially. But a second reason James may only mention this second love command is because it necessarily implies the first. That is, we can't truly love our neighbors as ourselves unless we first love God first and foremost. And this is the connection that the Apostle John makes. And in 1 John 4, he says, We love Him, that is God, because He first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, 
How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so the two love commands, and hence the the two tables of the law, go hand in hand. We can't obey one without also obeying the other. And as we'll soon see, James will address this unity of the law. But for now, the royal law is the summary of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Found in the two great love laws, which James writes kind of in a shorthand form, by saying simply, love your neighbor as yourself. But why is this called the royal law? Well, simply it's the royal law because it's given by the king. The king has given this law to guide his subjects and how they should live in his kingdom. Now we know as the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and rules over all creation, even now as as Lord and King. Remember how after His death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, and and, uh, all power and authority was given to Him. And again, He even now is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as He reigns, He's working even now to subdue His enemies under Him until He returns again on the last great day to usher in the fullness of His kingdom. And so Christ reigns now as king. And he's the one who is given this law. And as our king and Lord, Jesus has given us this law to follow and to obey. And he's told us clearly in his word how we, his subjects, should live. Right? Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so as the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, If God in Christ establishes the law for all mankind, well, how much more so for those whom He's he's chosen, called, and redeemed in Christ? And this is why Jesus charges His disciples, if you love Me, keep My commandments. If we love Christ, for all that He's done for us, then we should demonstrate that love and gratitude by obeying His commands. And so then we have a duty and an obligation to obey our Lord and Master. It isn't an option or a matter of preference. If we love Christ, then we will obey Him, and we ought to obey Him. Well, this then hits, of course, at the controversy over the understanding of the law and the gospel. In fact, carefully note here how James presumes his readers are striving to fulfill this royal law. That is, they're being diligent to following Christ's commands, not to earn their salvation, but to show that they truly belong to Christ. And he'll go into further explanation to this uh, a little bit later. And if they're fulfilling it, he says they're to be commended. He says, you do well. Good job. Keep pressing on in fulfilling this royal law. If you're treating the rich well and dealing with them kindly, even though they mistreat you, and if you're doing this with pure and undefiled motives as a way to love your neighbor, well, then you're doing well. You're to be commended for showing your love for Christ by loving your rich neighbor as yourself. 
And this is precisely what Christ, our King, desires from his loyal subjects. But, James goes on to add a warning in verse 9. But, but if you show partiality, will you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so from one perspective, it looks like they might be doing well, right? They're, they're loving their neighbors, even the rich ones who are oppressing them. But remember, back in, in verse 4, James already raised the issue of motives. Reminding them, look, if you're doing this with proper motives, well, that's good. But if their motives are evil and they're treating the rich well for personal gain or favor, and if they're doing this at the expense of the, their poor neighbors, well, then they're not only not fulfilling the royal law, but they're actually violating it. Well, this reveals to us that there is a keeping of the law that, that can be superficial. An outward display of obedience, and yet it's false and even sinful because it's done for impure and evil motives. It's done with a heart that's far from God and, and not truly set on loving one's neighbor, but is only set on loving oneself. And this kind of false obedience was precisely what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. Right? They weren't motivated to keep the law for, uh, or, or they, they were motivated to keep the law for reasons of pride and, and self-love and self-righteousness and, and an outward appearance to be able to, to look good before the people and to appear holy before the people. But the obedience that Christ calls His people to have is with a true and sincere heart that seeks to love and honor God first and foremost, and that strives to put the needs of our neighbors before our own. And so the sin of partiality violates this royal law. And even though favoring one group might seem like you're fulfilling the law, it isn't. Because showing favoritism, by showing favoritism, as we mentioned last time, you're also discriminating against another group. And the fact that the rich were being favored over the poor made the sin that much worse. Again, as James has said in verse 5, God Himself has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And so though this may seem like a small, insignificant matter, it isn't. The sin of partiality makes one a lawbreaker, makes one a violator of the royal law. And in violating the royal law, you reject not only the principle of the law itself, but you also reject the king who gave it. And certainly it's this fact that we see the rejection of God and His law that we see all around us in the world today. Right? This is what... We sang earlier, uh, David Penn in, in Psalm 2. The heathen kings and rulers rise up against the Lord and His anointed king and they seek to throw off His law. But they don't want to be bound by it any longer. They want to press on in, in their own sin, their idolatry, their greed, their lust, their murder, and immorality without any shame and, and con, uh, conscience regarding a law higher than themselves. Self-exaltation and self-pleasure becomes their ultimate goal rather than seeking to deny themselves and to seek to serve the Creator of all. 
And such rebellion is what we can expect from those living in a fallen and sinful world. But again, we remember, who is James writing to? He's not writing to those in the world. He's writing to believers, to those in the church. And if they're showing partiality, well, even they're sinning against God, and they're active rebellion against the Lord. They're active rebellion against the Lord and His King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James further illustrates this by demonstrating that Jesus, as our Lord and King, demands obedience. But not just partial, half-hearted obedience, but full and complete obedience to the whole law. And so if we profess and confess His name, we must strive to live as He lived. And James demonstrates this by first stressing the unity of the law. Verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point... He is guilty of all. Now we noted before that the, the two love commands go hand in hand with one another. One cannot be fulfilled without also fulfilling the other. And if this is true for the summarized form of the, the royal law, it's also true then for the expanded form, that is the Ten Commandments. Right? The Ten Commandments hold together as a united moral code which God has given for all mankind to obey, including those whom He's redeemed. All the law is given as a rule and guide for how we're to live, how we're to love and serve God, and how we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And James is saying here, you can't just pick and choose which commandments you're going to obey and which ones you're going to pass over. And yet, of course, this is exactly what happens all too often today, even among Christians. People are fine being obedient in the areas where it's easy and convenient for them to be obedient, especially those commands which require the least amount of of change. But those that are more challenging, those that require them to deny themselves, that require self-control and sacrifice, those commands are ignored. And yet they think because they're keeping some, well, they're okay. But James says here, that's not true. If you break one, you've broken them all. And thus, in God's eyes, you'll be found guilty of them all. And so obedience can't be half-hearted. It must be all or nothing in extent as well as in magnitude. See, the problem is we often look upon our sin as, as small and insignificant. Right, like a, a crack on a, on a priceless vase, a, a small crack. And we look at it and say, oh, well, that's not too bad. Right? It, could have been, it certainly could have been worse. And hey, you know, if we just turn it this way, we, we won't even see it. It's like it's not even there. That's how we view our sin. But God views it quite differently with His all-searching eyes. He looks at the vase and he sees it completely shattered into tiny pieces. That the damage can't be hidden. And yet isn't this precisely what Adam and Eve thought to do in the garden? They disobeyed God's law. And and think about it. It was such a small little sin. It was really the sin of a child. They disobeyed God's law. And and all they did was eat a, a piece of fruit from a tree that God told them not to eat. That doesn't seem like such a terrible thing, right? You tell your children to, you know, don't eat that. 
and they do, and they disobey, it's, I mean, it's, it's wrong and they ought to be punished, but is it worthy of death? Well, in God's eyes, this little sin, this sin of a child, was terrible. It was terrible that it truly brought death into the world. Not only to Adam and Eve, but to all creation and to all their descendants after them. Because it was disobedience against the royal law. It was disobedience against their creator. Such a seemingly small sin, and yet God saw it as pure rebellion against Him. It was an affront to His holiness, and it was a mockery of His authority. And so because of the unity of the law, one violation is all it takes to make us guilty before God. And to even further demonstrate this unity, James gives an example in verse 11. He said, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So the one and the same God and Lord, who gave one command, gave all the commands that were to obey. And so the point James is making here is that, that if God gave both of these laws, do not commit adultery and do not commit murder, well then the clear expectation is that we must obey both, because both are binding on us. Now, a murderer can't justify himself by saying, well, I'm not that bad, at least I didn't commit adultery as well. Or the one who commits adultery can't say, well, at least I didn't kill anyone. No, none of these justifications work. Whether you've committed adultery or murdered someone, you're still a lawbreaker in the eyes of God and are deserving of His just wrath and curse. Now, before we begin to kind of pat ourselves on the back... Saying to says, well, I'm doing pretty well then, because I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't committed adultery or committed murder, so I'm, I'm well ahead of the game. Well, we need to remember that not far from James' mind here is the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus actually expands the law so that those who are filled with anger and hatred actually have committed murder in their hearts, and those who lust after a, a, a woman have committed adultery in their hearts. And so the one who lusts in his heart, who engages in sexual immorality and, and views pornography and internet and has committed adultery, and is, is guilty. And the one who's filled with anger and hatred toward others even discriminating against the poor, favoring one group of, of people at the expense of another is guilty as well. The same can be said about idolatry and cursing and taking in the Lord's name in vain and neglecting the Sabbath day and greed, lying, stealing, cheating and coveting in all their various forms and manifestations. Right? One simple violation is all it takes to become a lawbreaker in the sight of God. A lawbreaker deserving of His just wrath and curse. And so what are we to do? Well, in the grace of God, we're to strive to be loyal subjects. Seeking to love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And seeking to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is essentially what James says in verse 12. He says, So speak, and so do... 
as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now this echoes the call uh, back in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And remember, they're achieving the righteousness of God, holiness and Christ-likeness, is to be the goal of every loyal subject. So our thoughts and our emotions, our words, our speech, our deeds, and our actions are to be guided by the the royal law that Christ has given us. The royal law shows us how we're to please and serve Him and how we can strive to be more like Him. But note James says here that we'll be judged by the law of liberty. What does he mean by this? Well, the law of liberty is the law of grace. It is the fruit of obedience which we produce as those who've been transformed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. For it's by this standard that we who are in Christ will be judged. And yes, it's true, in Christ we've been freed from the curse and condemnation of the law, and we stand before God in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's our justification, and that doesn't get taken away. But also in Christ, as His loyal subjects, we're still called to bear fruit of obedience in our lives. We're called to pursue sanctification and Christ-likeness as we fully rely on God's grace to fulfill the royal law. Because we must understand that the, the work of the law we do, right, the striving and the effort that we put forth into our sanctification and our growth and grace and holiness, it's not our own work. But it's the gracious work of the Spirit of Christ in us. And this is what Paul declares in Philippians 2, verse 13. When he charges to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not us, it's the Spirit of the living God working in us and through us, enabling us to do these things. And so in Christ, then we're renewed and freed from the bondage of sin and the curse of the law, and yet, as Spirit filled Christians, we're now enabled to actually be faithful doers of the law. Loving God and loving our neighbor even as He's called us. And so James' charge here is that if we're to be measured by this law of liberty, that is the law of grace, well then we ought to live like we've been truly redeemed by Christ and and transformed by His grace into loyal subjects of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this in the midst of a world, again, that's in rebellion against Him. This means that how we live our lives is going to be very different from the way that the world lives and the way that we once lived when we were outside of Christ. Because we must live not as slaves to sin, who are under the curse of the law, but we must live as loyal subjects of our holy and righteous King. But if we persist in being rebellious wallbreakers, if we persist in the sins of partiality and discrimination, showing no mercy to our neighbors or love to God, then James extends yet another firm warning in verse 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Now James again seems to be echoing the words of Jesus here in a couple of ways. First, 
we're reminded of the parable of the unmerciful servant. Right, who though he himself was forgiven a great debt by his master, he showed no mercy to his neighbor who owed him a meager amount. And when, of course, when the, the master found out that the unmerciful servant was punished without mercy because he showed no mercy when given the opportunity. And then another way that, that James may be reflecting upon the words of Jesus, of course, is also Jesus speaking again in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. But James here is actually emphasizing the implied opposite. Right? If the merciful are going to obtain mercy, well, it means that those who are merciless will receive no mercy on the day of judgment. And this is a warning most severe for those who neglect or violate the royal law. But as if not wanting to end this charge on a, on a down note, James goes on to offer this glorious encouragement to them and, and ultimately to us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now there are two ways that we can understand this. The first is that our mercy toward others, that is fulfilling the royal law and doing it rightly as faithful, loyal subjects, will triumph over judgment. And indeed it shall. Right? If we live the way Christ has called us to live, love toward God and love and mercy toward our neighbors, then we shall receive mercy on the last great day. If we're merciful, even as He, is merciful, uh, as he has been merciful to us. Right? That's, again, the, the beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. But again, we must be reminded... And this is the second way to understand mercy triumphing over judgment. We must remember that we can't be merciful to our neighbors. We can't fulfill the royal law unless God has first been merciful toward us in Jesus Christ. And this He's done. Beloved of God, let's never forget that we can only love God and we can only love our neighbor because the grace and the mercy of God triumph over judgment at the cross. When Jesus Christ endured the wrath and curse of God that we alone deserve because of our sin. Mercy triumphed over judgment that day. And by God's grace, the blessings of that victory now belong to us, to all those who even now would turn from their sin and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. Truly may the Spirit of the living God work this grace in you and transform you into loyal subjects of the King of Kings so that your life and in your life you might truly bring all glory and praise to our great and God and Savior, who alone is worthy to receive it. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this reminder and that you have given us your law that we might first be instructed and to see how much we are in need of a Savior. And that it leads us to Christ. But that your law also is 
intended to show us how we can serve you and please you is show our gratitude to you for the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that was secured not by our works, not by our law keeping, but was secured only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to keep that balanced perspective between your law and the gospel. A proper understanding of our justification and our sanctification. And Lord, we know there's much confusion about these things uh, in the church today. But we pray that as we study your word, we will see the truth that's here. And that it's only by your grace that we are saved and declared righteous. And it truly is by your grace that we're sustained to do the works that you've set before us to do. We rejoice and give thanks for this glorious reminder. And we would praise you and thank you, O God, that you would help us to be mindful, to be true lovers of you first and foremost in our lives, and to be lovers of our neighbors, to be a witness to them, and to be an encouragement to them, to display to them the love and the mercy which we have so richly and abundantly received from you. And that in this way, mercy will truly triumph over judgment when hearts are turned to you and are glorifying your name. And so we just praise you and thank you, God, for these truths. And we pray that your spirit would would impress them upon each of our hearts as we give all praise and glory to your name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.